Hello everyone, once again welcome to Reason for Hope. Thank you for joining us today. We are live with you for the next hour to receive and answer your questions on God's Word, the Bible. That's right, this is a live broadcast where we make ourselves available to delve into Scripture to find the answers to your questions. So if you have questions on the Bible, whether it's a specific verse or a chapter or a book or the whole thing, uh, on the Bible, a question, an honest question, or maybe something you're going through in your life, you'd like a biblical perspective, what's God's heart for you in your circumstances, or maybe even other religions and worldviews, maybe things going on in the world, really any honest question, as long as you know, we're going to delve into the Bible to find the answers to those. That's what we're all about here at A Reason for Hope. My name is Dave Robson. I am your host today, and we'll be literally fielding those questions as they come on in through our various platforms, which I will share with you in just a moment. But with us today, as is often the case on a Thursday, uh, Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing today, sir? I got attacked by a goose. You got attacked by a goose? Things are territorial, man. And despite <laughs> their size, they got a mean right hook. Where were you to get attacked by a goose? Near a body of water, which believe it or not, do exist in Arizona. Wow. Well, you know not to go back there again, I guess. I'm glad you're here and safe and your ankles are still intact. Not with that one. Also with us, Pastor Peter Martin. How about you? Any any animal attacks recently? <laughs> no, no. No? Well, that's good. I'm glad this to hear. This will be my last Thursday, though. This will be your last Thursday? That's it, man. It's well, the end right. of an era. It is. You're moving to Mondays? I'm going to be on Mondays and Tuesdays. Mondays and Tuesdays. For those on the radio, that would be Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. Well, that's okay. As long as we still have you in some fashion. <laughs> and Scott's going to be back on Thursdays. So right. That's cool. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Right. Mm -hmm. And Sean, every day except Monday, just like me. Yep. Yeah. Very good. Well, there you go. I'm glad we got that all figured out. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I mentioned, Reason for Hope is a live broadcast. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. here in Tucson, Arizona, Mountain Standard Time. But of course, you can join us all around the world, whatever time that is for you. And of course, you can always watch our archive, archive as well. Uh, it's an outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson, Arizona. So that's good to keep in mind when you're trying to find us on these various channels. Our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Com. It's a great place to go. While you're there, just have a little click around and get familiar with our church here. If you're in the Tucson, Arizona area and looking for somewhere to, to fellowship, or maybe even you're a new believer, um, you're more than welcome to come check us out. We have a Wednesday evening service and three Sunday morning services. So check out our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, and uh, you can see what we're all about there. Lots of different events and studies and support groups and all kinds of things. So, But for the purpose of today, that watch live tab that you see right there, if you click on that, that will take you out to our live page. When we're off air, uh, you'll see a countdown to our next show, and you'll see a list of upcoming um, shows, our schedule right there. But when we're on air, you'll see the video. You will be able to sign in with a username of your choice and uh, chat with us. Send your questions in through that method. So the direct link, ccftucson.online.church, or again, follow the link from our calvarychristianfellowship.com website. Both takes you to that same place. Of course, we're on Facebook, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, facebook.com slash Tucson, or just look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Um, don't forget to, if, if you've been blessed by the ministry, share us around, uh, click on that like, and, and of course, that's another way you can comment there with your question, and we will endeavor to get to those later on our show today. So that's Facebook. If you're a Facebook person, you can find us there. Um, we have a, an app as well that you can download on your mobile device, whether it's iPhone or Android. Go to your app store and look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. 
you'll see that red background with the white Calvary Chapel logo dove. That is our app. You can download that and watch us there and interact with us there as well. And we also have a channel on Roku and Apple TV. So if you have a smart TV or one of those devices, you can add Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson as one of your channels. And that's another way that you can participate or at least watch the show there as well. On YouTube, the channel is called A Reason for Hope. So search for A Reason for Hope on YouTube or officially youtube.com slash at A Reason for Hope 546. Uh, but again, just search for us and you will find us. I'm going to just stop saying that. That's <laughs> ridiculous. Anyone would no type, that. type that in. <laughs> yeah. Even if I wanted that link, I would search first and then just copy and paste it. So but anyway, A Reason for Hope on YouTube. That's a great place to go for archive as well. If you follow that live tab, anytime we've gone live, it's archived there automatically. And so if you missed a show like we did uh, Tuesday night, we had Lisa Keller here, who's a professional, a licensed professional counselor, and uh, her and Peter work a lot together. We talked about Christian parenting. So if you missed that show, that might be one you might want to recap. Um, if you are a parent or looking at being so or any human it was very it was awesome we have parents <laughs> if you have parents <laughs> if you were born of man and woman <laughs> it was a great show but any of course any of the shows if you want to recap or uh, catch up watch that uh, go to that live tab on youtube a reason for hope um al sorry sean i just spat everywhere and it went your direction uh, <laughs> so, so our senior pastor here i didn't need to admit that i'm off camera right now i don't know why i did i'm just an honest kind of guy our senior pastor here scott richards uh, as we mentioned he's here gonna be here wednesday thursday friday now uh but he's on twitter scott r4h that's scott letter r number four letter h on twitter he posts highlights from the show and just uh mostly like commentary on world events there's so much going on in the world as it pertains to end times and biblical prophecy and that kind of thing. Um, so follow along with him. You'll find that very fascinating if you're on Twitter, Scott R4H. We're on Rumble as well. That's kind of a newer addition to our lineup. Uh, we're not live on there, but our, the archive of our shows is posted there as well. Look for A Reason for Hope Bible Q&A on Rumble. Um, should you be on that platform? And last but not least, questionsforhope at gmail.com is our email address, questionsforhope, all spelled out at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on the radio, as Peter mentioned, you're listening to the last show we did pre-recorded. So we're not live with you per se, um, but use that email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com, and we will get to your question on our next show. And then consider just joining us on one of those live platforms when you're not you know, on your drive time or whatever other reason you're listening to the radio. But uh, those are available for you as well. So with all that being said, we love to pause to pray, of course. We're handling God's word and want to handle it well and accurately. So Peter, would you like to pray today? Yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. Father, we love you. We're grateful for you and all that you're doing in our lives and in the world. We do pray for this time that we'd be able to focus in on your word. Uh, keep us consistent with your truth and your scriptures. And I do pray that those listening would be blessed as a result. We're grateful for you, God, and in your name. Amen. 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 Well, Thursday, Well, when, when are you going to be doing your book recommendations if you're not with us Thursday? So me and Sean talked about it, and on Tuesdays we'll be switching off between book recommendations, apologetic Apolog studies, and things like oh, that. Oh, okay. Very good. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, for those of you not familiar, we usually do a book recommendation on Thursday. So what do you have for us today? Is it a children's book? 
Does it, it is... involve dinosaurs? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. It would have been actually more interesting right now. <laughs> uh, so this is, I told Dave, it's one of my favorite books, and he mocked me by saying all books are like one of my favorite books. You say that every week. <laughs> this is my favorite book. For this sure. is legitimately my top five favorite fiction books. Uh, it's called The Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. And Heard of it. Is, uh, <laughs> you know, you're British, so it is one of your classics. So. Yes. Uh, Charles Dickens, one of the... He's usually listed as the greatest uh, fiction author in all of, uh, basically, all the world. Second, probably only to Shakespeare. And uh, so he wrote a lot of amazing and incredible books. The one that most people are familiar with is A Christmas Carol. Mm. And uh, this is a one that he wrote towards the end of his life. Now, this is one that some Christians might struggle with because Dickens had an interesting life, uh, one that definitely did not live up to his faith. And he had views that seemed to run contrary to Christianity. There's a mm. book that came out called God and Charles Dickens Recovering the Christian Voice of a Classic Author by Gary College. And he does talk about Dickens's faith, like how it worked and how it uh, played out. One of the reasons why a lot of people don't think that Charles Dickens was a Christian is because he saw a lot of the decadence and the malpractice of the Anglican Church of his day. And he critiqued them pretty harshly. But in a lot of his works, you can see that he was a devout Christian. And he really did see the, the teachings of Christ and the life of Christ as highly inspirational. And he did put his faith in Christ. Now, that kind of fluctuated throughout his life. And it's hard to really nail him down. If Was he an orthodox believing Christian? Or did he uh, fall away into more universalism? It's really, really hard to nail him down. But for the sake of what we're talking about today, it doesn't really matter. The Tale of Two Cities is actually a very Christian book. So what this book follows is it is historical fiction. And if you've never read it, by the way, this book was spoiled for me before I read it. And I am severely bummed out that someone spoiled it for me because it is such a good book. It is incredibly well written. It's really well paced out. It's very action oriented. It's exciting. If you are looking for a book to read, read A Tale of Two Cities. It's really, really amazing. And you may want to just skip this portion because I'm about to spoil it for you. You may want to skip this portion <laughs> of the show. Go read it. Come back and listen to this portion because we're going to dive into some heavy spoilers. But the backdrop of the story is about the French Revolution. That's the historical backdrop of the story. And it follows several characters that give perspectives on what was going on. Now, the two cities that are in question in the title of the book are London and Paris. And what he's looking at is what are the events that led to the revolution in France and why didn't England go the same way? Now, the reason why I say it's a it's a really Christian book, though, is because the answer to that question for Charles Dickens was Christianity. He believed that Paris or France was losing their Christian origins and they were diving into more secularism and pure rationality. And that's what led to the bloody revolution of their time. Now, today, we really need to pay attention to that. Because what he's saying is, if the West loses its Christian foundation, the only place for us to go is bloody revolution. Mm. And you actually see that in the French Revolution first, but then you also see it in all the subsequent revolutions, like in Russia, China, and other places in the East uh, that fell into the socialist ideology. The idea is, if that you revolt against the values that have been provided for us by Christianity— you are revolting to bloody disparity. And he does a very good job of showing this. Now, again, 
He's not talking about Christianity just as a worldview. He's talking about Christianity as being real. That's what's going to save a particular culture. Mm. So he follows several families. The main, uh, the main family that he goes through are the Minettes, right? The father is a guy named Alexander Minette, and he was arrested <laughs> by the French aristocrats for essentially hush, hushing him up. Right. So he this happens before the book begins. He ends up performing a surgery on a young man to try to save his life. Now, the reason why the young man was in dire straits is because his uh, essentially this ruling class, the these marquis, guy named Marquis Saint Evermond, raped that guy's sister and in such a brutal way that she ended up dying. He tried to kill this guy and he ended up failing and they had to call in the doctor to save his life. But because the doctor now is a witness to their crimes, they send him to one of the most brutal prisons within France, a place called the Bastille. And he spends 18 years there and he essentially loses his mind. Now the book opens with a guy going out to rescue Dr. Alexander Minette. And he says that you're going to be recalled to life. You're gonna come back and you're gonna live amongst men and he brings him to his daughter, a woman named Lucy Minette, in order to heal him. Now, the, these characters become archetypes for what he sees as not only the cause of the revolution, but again, why London didn't go in the same direction. Mm. So the reason why the revolution occurred is because what Dickens is getting at is every society has what you would call a troubled past. Mm. <laughs> every society has issues within its history and yeah. people who have been wronged, offended, and violated by the people who are in the ruling class. And if we don't have a means of redemption, if we don't have a way to be recalled to life, then the only hope is going to be through bloody revolution and vengeance. And he points out that in the French Revolution, this is true, the cross was replaced with the guillotine. So mm. the guillotine, for those of you who guys who don't know, was, a, was an execution device that actually found its origins in the revolution itself that had a large blade that would be raised on a pulley system and dropped to decapitate the people that were being executed. People stopped wearing the cross, the crucifix, and they started wearing the guillotine as a religious symbol. Mm. And their idea was by executing those who have put us in this bad place, we are bringing about salvation. We're saving ourselves, in other words. We're redeeming ourselves from the oppression that is occurring within our lives. So... As a general rule, if we don't have a religion or a worldview that has a capacity to accept eternal final judgment, namely the cross, we only have our own hands to find vengeance for the wrongs that have happened before, right? There's a reason why guys like Martin Luther King were fighting for equal rights among the black population of America, but were not preaching bloody revolution. Right. The reason why he was able to do that is because he believed in a final judgment that was going to come from God. Mm. He believed in forgiveness. He believed in redemption. And the only reason why he didn't fall into those traps was because he had a faith in God. Right. If you get rid of that, then what you get is a culture that is only seeking justice eternally. And that means a vengeance culture. Right. So when we look at our current day and we recognize a lot of the brutality that is happening throughout our culture of people wanting vengeance, wanting justice, social yeah. justice all right. the time. It's because they don't have a worldview that accepts for final judgment. Yeah. And because they don't have a worldview that accepts for final judgment, 
the only way they're going to get judgment is through their own brutality, essentially, yeah. through their own will. And Dickens is warning about that. Mm. And a lot of people on the other side, so on the liberal side, they're like, there needs to be reparations. There needs to be justice. There needs to be things that happen that even the odds. And people on the conservative side say, no, there doesn't. That doesn't need to happen. What Dickens would say is actually the liberals are right. The progressives are right, but they're wrong about how we achieve that. Mm. They're wrong about how the, the scales are evened. They're wrong about what we need to do as a society. They are seeking... Uh, in other words, they're seeking revolution in order to produce justice. Mm. But what's going to happen is they're going to overturn justice in the name of revolution, mm. right? That's what happened in France, and that's what could happen in the United States. So the book opens by saying it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Mm. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity, and it goes on from there. And then it ends by saying, in short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. What he's saying is, is that the time that preceded the revolution is exactly like every time in world history, mm. right? There are always going to be cultural shames, cultural injustices that need to be rectified. And if we don't have a belief in the cross, if we don't have a belief in final judgment from God, then we will end up like the French as opposed to like the British in this particular story. So what happens to Lucy Minette, this girl who has had incredible injustice in her life and her father, someone who's been terribly traumatized, terribly mistreated by his country? Well, they're able to find redemption in the hopes that once again, God will bring about final judgment. Mm. And so instead of seeking vengeance and going yeah. out and we're going to get even with those terrible people who did this to us and tortured us and, and, and ruined our lives, they instead say, we are going to trust God with this justice and we are going to simply seek out our own good through love and cherishing one another. Mm. And it ends up that Lucy mar marries a descendant of one of the people that put her father in prison. She marries the nephew of the guy who, you know, essentially raped that woman and almost killed the brother and then sent uh, her dad to prison. And she marries him because she believes in this redemptive work of grace. She mm. believes in the redemptive work of God's mm. love. And they're able to heal. This is kind of an aside. But as a counselor, what I noticed is that when you're dealing with someone who has been traumatized, and I talk about this a lot in my book about trauma, and it's something I experienced in my own recovery from trauma is that the easiest thing to do when someone has gone through any type of trauma is to sympathize with them, empathize with them, and say, hey, it's okay, everything's going to be all right, and then excuse all of their preceding terrible behavior, because that's usually what happens to someone who has been traumatized. They, yeah. they re respond in kind, and that's what Dickens shows in this book, that the French people in the beginning of the book are victims, but they turn more bloody than the people that victimized them in the first place. And what he's trying to show is that it's the easiest thing in the world to give complete amnesty to those who have been wronged mm. and say it's justified. Mm. Everything they're doing is justified and we just need to listen to their story and show them compassion and everlasting love. That's the simplest thing that you can do for someone who goes through trauma, but it's also the worst possible thing that you could do for mm. them, yeah. right? By telling them that you are making them a perpetual victim and you are enabling them to then victimize other people yeah. in the place of what has happened to them. And it won't make them happy. It will make them much more miserable. Yeah. Uh, Shelby Steele 
who's an author that talks a lot about the black community and what happened when essentially white America started to seek reparations through the civil rights movement and things like that. And he talks about the good and he talks about the ugly. And he says the ugly of it is that we essentially put the population, this, this is the black population of America, into a perpetual victim status in which they don't feel responsible for the things that they've done. And it's actually put them away, pulled them away from being able to better their own lives, right? To seek redemption, to be recalled to life as Dr. Alexander Minette was. So that's one really incredible theme that's throughout the book. Uh, is there anything you want to say about that, Sean, before we move on? No, continue. All right. So uh, another really interesting theme is this idea of resurrection. We've talked about it a little bit. But and, and by the way, I was joking with, uh, with Dave before the show. Uh, if you don't want to read this book, you could watch The Dark Knight Rises, where <laughs> Christopher <laughs> Nolan actually adapts this book into a superhero comic movie. And it, uh, Dark Knight Rises is also an incredible film. But th all of the themes within this book are in The Dark Knight Rises. Mm -hmm. And actually, Bane's rise to power is the mimicry of the French Revolution. Those right? are two very diverse options. <laughs> <laughs> you either read this book by Charles Dickens yes. or you watch this or movie you watch by a Batman Nolan. movie. But they're both British, so it's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, true. Some themes Same. not so subtle. The golden chair was taken straight out of the kangaroo courts that were hosted during the French Revolution and Bain's speeches, of course, were also based on a lot of their rhetoric, although yep. they weren't English, so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So absolutely, it, it, it was very much in that way. Uh, like I said, to be a model from uh, A Tale of Two Cities. And it's very excellent. But anyway, the, the idea of resurrection, what's the importance of resurrection? So we've already seen why the knowledge of the cross is so important if a society isn't going to crumble into a seeking of vengeance. And this applies societally, but it also applies to your own personal life. If you've been traumatized or wronged in your past, you're never going to find peace through seeking vengeance. The only way you're going to find peace is by believing in the final judgment of God. This doesn't mean, by the way, we don't seek justice as Christians. It doesn't mean we don't fight for justice. It doesn't mean that we don't seek it throughout our culture and throughout our own lives, right? If someone has wronged you and they've wronged you in a way that's illegal, you should seek legal repercussions for that person's actions. However, recognize that the state, whatever they do to that person, it's not going to heal you. It may make you feel somewhat better, but it's not going to mm. heal what's been done to you. Mm. You have to believe that not only is there a capacity for justice from the cross, but there's also a capacity for redemption and resurrection. So the concept of resurrections throughout the book, one of the main characters is a guy named Jerry Cruncher. And Jerry Cruncher makes money by digging up corpses and selling them to medical hospitals. And he's called, jokingly, a resurrection man because right? he's taking up courses and he's selling them for cash uh now <laughs> I didn't know it, that was a career choice yeah apparently you could be wow. a resurrection man i don't a know career. if it's still a career <laughs> choice you know, but uh, uh that's what he did for a living and uh it, he, he shows kind of the underbelly of london because that's he's from london and this is what he does and he's a mockery of what we would call resurrection and what he's showing he's a picture of people who again they're trying to move forward by digging up the past, not redeeming it, but just digging it up and trying to make a mockery of it, selling it for something that makes them a quick buck. And that's what the revolutionaries were doing. We're going to dig up the past, all the injuries of the past. And we're going to talk about them incessantly and it's going to cause cultural healing. But did it? No, it caused cultural unrest and destruction and death. So again, all these people today who are like, we need to just talk about the past and think about all the injustices of the past. And I'm not saying we don't talk about the past. But again, if you think that's going to bring about cultural healing, you're very naive 
and foolish to the events of history. We have to understand that's not going to do it. Well, what will? Resurrection. So there's a character in this book. There are two, uh, these are the two main characters, the actual main characters. One is named Sidney Carton, and the other is a guy named Charles Darnay. Now, Charles is the one who marries Lucy Minette, right? The, the, the main woman that I talked about in the beginning, the one who redeems her father. And Charles is a descendant of, as I said, some of the worst aristocrats within the French dignitary. And he renounces his title and he moves to England to try to make an honest living. But when the revolution breaks out, one of his friends says, hey, I'm in trouble. I'm getting arrested. They're going to execute me. Can you come down to help me? And Charles, who's a very honest and respectful man, runs down to try to save him. But the second he comes in, people, the people in the revolution are saying, well, you're a foreigner, you're from England. They arrest him out of suspicion. But then when they find out what his lineage is, they immediately say, we need to execute you. We need to kill you for the crimes of your family. Mm. Uh, and again, this is a biblical theme. Should you judge a child for the sins of the father, mm. right? And again, in our culture, if you're wondering, why is it that people think that the ancestors, right, uh, that we can redeem our ancestors through the actions right now, that I could get vengeance on you for what your ancestors did and things will be all right. Uh, that, that just doesn't work. But at any rate, he gets arrested. He's about to be executed. And Sidney Carton, who looks a lot like Charles, who is a, a decadent man, he's a drunkard, he's never really made much of his life, he goes down to France. He breaks into the prison cell of Charles Darnay using uh, certain... Uh, I guess you would call them alliances that he has made through his shady behavior. And he's able to switch places with Charles before the execution and die for him. It's a not so subtle lean into the cross, right? It's not so subtle look at choosing to live your life and sacrifice for others as opposed to choosing to live your life in service of self. And so Sidney makes this decision. But what you see is that his decision to die for Charles is not a decision to throw his life away. It's a, it's a decision to redeem it. And the passage that gets him to do it in the Bible is John 11. And he quotes it to himself the night of his death. And he, he keeps on quoting it over and over again. I am the resurrection and the life. Mm. He who lives and believes in me will not die, but they will live. And what he recognizes is that he has wasted his life in pursuit of what he thought would make him happy in the present. But when he starts thinking about God and he starts thinking about honoring him and serving him and living for him, even in these last moments of his life, the prospect of the resurrection is what propels him to do that. It's what enables him to do that. Mm. And Scott says this a lot from the pulpit. Uh, someone who <clears throat> is only earthly minded is of no heavenly good, right? right. But someone who is heavenly minded is of the most earthly good. Mm. So if, I, if I'm thinking about what can I get out of this life and what can I do and, and how can I stimulate my nerve endings and make myself happy? then you're going to live a very miserable life. Mm. You're not going to actually live a very prosperous life. Mm. But if you instead say, there is a life to come, yeah. there is a king who has conquered death, there is a resurrection and a life awaiting from him, and I'm going to live my life in service to others. I'm going to not live my life to get what I want. I'm going to live my life to sacrifice for others. Yeah. Jesus says, if you lose your life, you're going to find it. But if you hold on to your life, you're going to lose it. And that's what Sidney Carden realizes. He realizes, I've been trying to hold on to my life getting anything I can for my own pleasure and my own value, and I've done nothing but screw up my life. Yeah. But now I'm going to let it go. I'm going to lose my life for the sake of this guy, Charles. And he finds it, right? Mm. He finds redemption in those last moments. And those last moments of his life 
are the best he's ever lived. And this is, this is the last sentences of the book. He's thinking about his oncoming death, and he says, It is a far, far better thing that I do now than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. Right, And this is mm. also quoted by Jim Gordon in The Dark Knight Rises <laughs> after, after Batman sacrifices himself for the city. Spoiler mm. alert for The Dark Knight Rises as well. Um, <laughs> and then what happens? The resurrection. Yeah, That's right. So the, the hope of the resurrection is what enables him to do this, right? Mm. It's what enables him to go through with this sacrificial life. And again, this applies to us, right? Who are we living for? What am I in service to? And the majority of us, whether we're Christians or not, we find ourselves pursuing our own ends at the detriment of others, right? We make selfish decisions that hurt others. Mm. I, I selfishly decide to live into my lust. I selfishly decide to live into my anger, my, my selfishness, my uh, narcissism, my pride, my, my vanity. And what does it do? It makes me feel temporarily better and it hurts everybody around me. Yeah. And the decision to walk after Jesus, to take up my cross daily, to die to myself, to work out the salvation of Jesus Christ and fighting my sin, fighting my flesh, working towards virtue, confessing my sin, pursuing community within a godly confines that will better me as opposed to a community that just feeds my own ego, right? Those are difficult decisions, sacrificial decisions. Mm. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you have some sort of a view of resurrection, some sort of a view that there is a better life to come, and that life begins in emulating the one who gave his life for us. So Sidney Carton becomes the ultimate picture of that and gives us a message of resurrection. Now, one thing I want to point out before we wrap this up, Christopher Hitchens, an atheist, uh, he died a couple years ago. He actually loved this book. And in debates where he was talking about the foolishness of the cross. He had to bring this book up because you know his friends who are Christians would bring this up to him and be like, you say it's so stupid for someone to sacrifice themselves for another, yet Mm. one of your favorite books, that's the whole point, right? The whole point is that redemption only comes through sacrificing your life for another. And there's this amazing scene at the end where a woman who's going to her death uh, unjustly just asks Sydney, she's like, if I could just hold your hand, while they kill me. Mm. Because if I could hold the hand of someone who chooses to die for another, I know that your bravery will let me see death in an honorable way. Uh, And they're like, if you're going to see sacrificing yourself for someone else, dying for someone else as a beautiful thing, you can't mock Christianity for having that as the centerpiece of their faith. And so in debates, he would sometimes bring that up. He would be like, well, the cross is really stupid, but in the tale of two cities, it's awesome, right? And he would say it kind of in in a nonchalant way. But the way that he would get around it is he would say, well, it's bad because Jesus dies for sinners. It's good that Sidney Carton dies for someone who is honorable and noble. Mm. And it brings to mind the Romans 5 passage that for a righteous man, someone would dare to die, yeah. right? So someone reading A Tale of Two Cities, they would say, I, I could get this. Yeah. I can understand why Sidney would sacrifice himself for an honorable guy like Charles Darnay mm. and for his family. But Paul says, but God demonstrates his love for us Mm -hmm. in that while we were still sinners, he died for the ungodly. What Hitchens was unable to accept was the unfathomable, the un, basically the un-understandable love of God that would actually die for someone who is seemingly sinful and evil. 
So if Dickens were to actually write this book from the perspective of Christianity, it would be Charles Darnay sacrificing himself for Sidney Carton, right? Yeah. Going to the guillotine for Sidney and not the other way around. But he's just trying to show that even someone like Sidney can be redeemed <coughs> through sacrifice. For our purposes, though, when we marvel at the cross of Christ, we remember that, that Jesus did not die for you because you are a great and amazing person, because you are so lovable. He died for you in spite of the fact that you're not. Right. He died for you specifically because your sins have put you in the position that they are. So unlike the characters in this book who finds himself in prison facing the guillotine for faults of his ancestors and faults of other people, you're facing judgment from God and maybe even the ire of your friends and family because of your decisions. Mm. And the redemption of Jesus comes to you not because of your goodness, but in spite of your unrighteousness. Mm. That's the beauty of the gospel. And in understanding that is how you're going to move forward. So again, mm. Sidney Carton, not only in the promise of the resurrection, but in the belief that God had died for someone, even a waste of a person like him, gave him the ability to sacrifice himself at the end of this book. Um, another interesting, I find this really prophetic and interesting. Just again, a message to Christians, a message to this world. Right now, there are wrongs being done by those in power. Mm -hmm. And the people in power, if you haven't noticed, are not friendly to Christianity. Mm. Lest you think that Christians can't rise up in revolution, note that some of the people who participated in the revolution of France were Christians. Mm. They didn't know what would happen at the end. They weren't supportive of everything that occurred. But they gave in to the mob mentality. They mm. gave in to the vengeance of the culture. And it ended up creating something really negative and bad. Yeah. And uh, Heinrich, uh, Heinrich Heine, which I'm sure is not how you pronounce that, in 1834, <laughs> he said something really interesting about the German people. He says, Christianity, and that is its greatest merit, has somewhat mitigated that brutal Germanic love of war. But it could not destroy it. Should that subduing talisman of the cross be shattered, the frenzied madness of these ancient warriors, that insane berserk rage of which Nordic bards have spoken and sung of so often, will once more burst into flame. This talisman is fragile, and the day will come when it will collapse miserably, when that ancient stony gods will rise from the forgotten debris and rub the dust of the thousand years from their eyes, and finally Thor with his giant hammer will jump up and smash these gothic cathedrals. Do not smile at the visionary who anticipates the, sum, uh, the same revolution in the realm of the visible places in the spiritual. Thought precedes action as lightning precedes thunder. German thunder of true Germanic character. It is not very nimble, but rumbles along ponderously. Yet it will come, and when you hear it crashing, such as never before has ever heard in the world's history, then you know that the German thunderbolt has fallen at last. And at that uproar, the eagles of the air will drop dead, and the lions of the remotest deserts of Africa will hide in their royal dens. A play will be performed in Germany, which will make the French Revolution look like an innocent ideal. He wrote that a hundred years before the rise of Hitler. Mm. Right? Now, what he's saying, and this is really cool for us as Christians, anticipating the return of Jesus. Mm. What he's saying is that he is prophetically looking at the world stage and he's saying, I see a day in which Christianity will go away and that people will try to resurrect the ancient pagan gods, which is, by the way, what the SS tried to do. Right? Um, but Page two the, of the Holocaust. 
Himmler and his letters specifically clarified the final solution's next step once Jews were ethnically cleansed from Europe would be to target the Christians and replace it with Norse paganism. Yep. Mm. And so he's predicting that, again, when people start re- rejecting the cross, and I like what he calls it, the talisman that subdues. Now, he's intentionally bringing up a passage in the Bible. Now, you guys may have already tinged what passage it is, but it's mm. in Second Thessalonians, where Paul talks about something that will be taken away there's something restraining the rise of the Antichrist. And he says one day it will be taken away and he will rise to power. Right? Mm. So what, what is it that will be taken away? The church, mm. Christians. That's what he's saying. Christianity will be removed and man will descend into madness and brutality. Mm. He sees it in Germany first, but we also <laughs> see it happening elsewhere. All of these revolutions six. we're talking about are foretastes. What, what did you say? Revelation 6. That's, that's oh. right. All these revolutions, the French Revolution, the Germanic Revolution, the Russian Revolution, they're all precursors to a great revolution that will happen, right? Once Christianity is fully vanquished, if you want to put it that way, we believe because of the rapture, but once it is fully put out of the world stage, there will be a bloody revolution that will make all previous revolutions look like child's play, right? Mm. And this will be the revolution of the Antichrist. Yeah. A quarter of the world's population dead within three and a half years. That's right. So wow. when we look at, when we study, again, I really encourage people, if you haven't read it, read the read A Tale of Two Cities. He does a great job of dramatizing what this kind of revolution would look like <laughs> and what it did look like. Remember that the French Revolution wasn't even close to how bloody the Russian Revolution was or the Chinese Revolution <laughs> was, right? They, they couldn't dream of the brutality that happened in those cultures or the Germanic Revolution. And remember that all of those are precursors to something even worse. So yeah. we need to remember, we're praying, come Lord Jesus, that is what we're praying for. We're praying for uh, humanity to forget the redeeming power of the cross and to be brought back to their brutality of our ancestors. But we're also praying that Jesus would redeem the world afterwards. So yeah. uh, great book. I highly encourage people to read it. Uh, any, any last thought, guys, before we move into the questions? Yeah, no, just that, I mean, the overall thing I get from that is, you know, the fact of God and the reality of God should change everything about how we live. I mean, you talked about justice. That's a huge thing, you know, wanting justice now as mm. opposed to trusting that one day there will be mm. a day in court, so to speak, you know. Um, but so, you know, our belief and, and the, the truth of God should change the way that we approach everything in our life. And that's the challenge. That's that's where our faith, you know, really comes into it. So. Thank you. Thanks, Peter, for sharing that. Tower Two Cities by Charles Dickens. Um, we do have some questions coming in. Uh, Mac D asked about the nature of our show here. He asked, what drives you to do this show? Is it for others listening or something that helps you in your personal life? Or is this the purpose, uh, or is it the purpose of telling the truth? Uh, Pastor Scott, he's joining us online. He commented, because Jesus wants us to. It's a total joy, <laughs> which is, of course it is. I mean, I can share briefly. I know that the uh, Reason for Hope started after the horrific events of 9-11. Um, our own Pastor Scott um, here at Calvary Christian Fellowship and the pastor of Calvary Tucson, Robert Furrow, went on the radio, made themselves available to answer questions. They realized people have questions like, where was God? Why is this happening? Why would God allow this? And that kind of thing. And they bravely and in faith went on the radio, made themselves available. And in short, it was something that just stuck, you know, and it became this this. Uh, uh, call in, uh, first a call in, radio, Bible Q&A, and of course we've developed a 
video vlog and that kind of thing. But um, perhaps you guys can share. Why do we do this show? What is the benefit of it? Is there a personal benefit? or Where God is called, he's equipped. We'll stop when he no longer has those doors open to us. Yeah. I would say it's kind of a both and, you know, to your question specifically, Mac. Uh, you never learn something better than when you have to teach it. Yeah. So uh, me and Sean getting the opportunity to research and to study, you know, even sometimes be asked questions that we don't know the answer to mm-hmm. and having to dig a little deeper into our faith and study these things, uh, it benefits us for sure. But the hope is if if we weren't benefiting anyone out there, I, I wouldn't be doing this. You know, <laughs> if, it was, right. if it was just me and you guys talking <laughs> in the studio, then uh, we would just turn the cameras off and have a cordial conversation amongst one another, right? Yeah. So. The, the hope is that people are benefiting from it, that they right. are being grown as a result. That's that's the beauty of what Jesus is doing inside of our lives. He is blessing us so that we might bless others. And so the more that we serve and the more we engage in faithfulness to God and the callings that he's given to us, the more joy we'll derive from it. So right. um, absolutely, I think it's a it's a wonderful blessing. Yeah, great. We'll have that help shout. Mac, thanks for inquiring about that. Um, Neil had a question that we did. Neil, we did answer your question last week sometimes, sometime. I'm not sure what day it was. I remember Pastor Scott was here, but maybe we can just touch on it real quick, um, considering Neil is with us presently. His question is, uh, he says, I've been away for a few weeks. A question was submitted during the Pastors and Leaders Conference asking, does God truly forget our sins after we repent? And he apologizes if we already answered, but does God truly forget our sins or in what what uh, sense does he uh, forget our sins or wash them away? Or... Yeah, sense is the operative term. Obviously, God's <laughs> not diminishing his attribute of omniscience. It's not like he doesn't know everything now, but the fact that he forgives us shows he's choosing to glorify his forgiveness of us based on our willingness to come to him for it. So it's not a conflict of attributes. It's not a diminishment of attributes. It's the emphasis of one attribute over another, which is the only reason our relationship with him is possible. Mm, very good. Well, I hope that helps you out. Neil, thanks for joining us again. Um, Mac asked, uh, were all the apostles martyred? All but one. John the Apostle died of natural causes, but he did not have an easy journey on the way. Mm. Uh, if you want to get more into the circumstances, um, of course, for scholarly research, Sean McDowell, the son and uh, successor of Josh McDowell, uh, did his doctrinal thesis on the historically verified execution, martyrdom, of the Apostle Peter, the Apostle James, and a few others, uh, specifically noting those guys as well. But when we're asked about the ones that are based largely on tradition, Eusebius, for example, is where we get most of this information. He was a few centuries after the fact, which again is not a problem historically, but it's not as solid as the stuff we have written by the eyewitnesses like Polycarp and um, Ignatius. What's also interesting is that when we use the word martyr, it's a reference to an individual in church history who's named John Martyr and uh, Justin. Justin Martyr. Thank you. I always get that confused. But anyway, his name means to be a witness, and mm. that's not necessarily done, but can include in being uh, executed for your faith, going to the uttermost, if you will. So when we're asking then, you know, why didn't John get martyred? Well, he he did. He was a (laughs) martyr. He did witness for Christ in his way. Uh, We do have... Yeah, they did try. (laughs) It's not like they didn't try to martyr. Yeah, during the reign of the emperor uh, Domitian, I believe it was, he 
tried to boil John alive, and this is when he was old, um, in boiling oil. I don't know if you've worked in food service and had to clean the French fry vat, or even in, back in the days when it was affordable, you were a frying bacon and it landed on bare skin. Imagine that in a jacuzzi, and you also imagine that in the body of an 80-plus-year-old man living in the Roman Empire, by the way, so not a lot of good uh, aloe treatments afterwards. He had a rough time about it, but uh, according to people who knew him, Polycarp being the most prominent, uh, he wrote that the Apostle John did die of natural causes in Ephesus, where he wrote John, the Gospel of John, Revelation, and 1st through 3rd John before he went to be with the Lord. Uh, As far as him not dying for his faith, it doesn't show a lack of sincerity. He was persecuted for it. The Lord just simply used him in a different way than the other 11, or I guess 12, but Judas doesn't really count as a martyr. Mm. Which leads us to our next question. Uh, From Talon? Yes. Yeah. um, Talon asks, was Matthias or Paul uh, the intended successor to Judas Iscariot? There's a debate that they should have just waited for Paul, right? No. <laughs> um, so, yeah, th- there is a bit of a debate. Paul did not consider himself one of the 12. Mm. So that's a pretty good indicator that he wasn't. Um, some people think of Paul as one of the 12 because of how much he wrote in the New Testament. But you got to remember, God didn't really, uh, well, you know, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> did not really inaugurate the apostles specifically to write the New Testament. Jesus inaugurated the apostles to be a witness to uh, his <laughs> sorry <laughs> to his ministry. Peter's talking. I was so <laughs> busy looking at you that I didn't see that the cameras weren't. So, all right, back to you, Peter. Uh, yeah. So, um, he he inaugurated them to be a witness to his his ministry, to be evangelists to the world, to represent what he had said. Uh, that's why the majority of the apostles did not write anything. We don't we don't have writings of the majority of them. We only have writings from John and Peter. And, and uh, obviously, Paul wrote the majority. But even James and Jude, they wrote in the New Testament. They weren't members of the Twelve. Mm. So you didn't have to be a member of the Twelve in order to have your your letters published, if you want to put it that way. <laughs> uh, but that's why a lot of people consider Paul to be a member of the Twelve. But he never considered himself that. The qualifications for memberships in the Twelve were given by the apostles after the uh, the suicide of Judas Iscariot. They had to be followers of Jesus from the time of his baptism before John to the end of his ministry. Paul doesn't fall under that category. Mm. Paul was witness to it, but not in a friendly way. (laughs) And he wasn't able to be a part of Jesus's teachings because he didn't like what Jesus was saying. And, uh, but yeah, so we wouldn't consider Paul a member of the 12. We would consider him to be an apostle, right? One set out, one with great authority within the early church and one whom we derive, I believe, two thirds of our New Testament from his writings. But he, he was never a member of the 12. Gotcha. Yeah. Anything to add? No. No? Very good. Well, thanks, Taylor, for that uh, question and for being a regular. You get the gold star over there. <laughs> um, as a question, um, I'll keep it anonymous. It, this, this is kind of a, might be like a counseling sort of situation. So I'm yeah. interested to see your take on this, even though I know I would want to pray about the dynamic of this. But anyway, the question is, how do I manage to have um, healthy respect for biblical conversations with my husband's parents mm. whilst maintaining healthy boundaries for myself and my children. Mm. Um, so the situation is uh, about his affair and now relationship. Uh, they are believers yet don't want to push him away so they accept his mistress into their homes mm. uh, yet complain to me uh, that they don't agree with his choices. So obviously a, 
very interesting and difficult dynamic. Um, yeah, there's a lot going on there, and it would be impossible for me to give you re- really good counsel. Yeah, over this, well, I'm going to give you kind of a generalized if- idea of what I think is appropriate given your circumstances that you've shared. But I would encourage you to see an actual biblical counsel. Right, uh, it's something to work through. Y- yeah, you're gonna like have, there's a lot than- of dynamics at work there. There's a lot of gray areas that you're going to have to navigate through. The first thing that I'll mention to you is you mentioned that he's still your husband. Um, I would strongly encourage you to actually pursue a divorce. That that may sound harsh and kind of uh, crazy, but biblically what we believe is that marriage is a contract. It's a covenant, mm-hmm. right? And when you enter into a covenant, yeah. The husband's parents. Yeah, I know, but right. she says it's still her husband. Okay. Yeah. Right, so um, unless I miss something there. Yes. Right? Unless yeah, I miss something there and you're, you're not married, but... <clears throat> Uh, sometimes as Christians, we we believe that we're doing a loving or caring thing by maintaining relationships with people that are essentially abusing us. When you enter into a covenant or a contract, there are two ways to break said contract. You could either dissolve it legally or you can violate the terms and conditions, right? So when I was in the Marines, we were under contract, right? It's not like a normal job. We were actually under a contract with the U.S. government. And you could pursue a legal dissolution of the contract but you're not going to win that court case because you're against the government. But you could try to do it, and some people did. But the majority of people, the way that their contract was dissolved is by their own actions. So, for instance, the Marines have a zero-tolerance policy when it comes to drugs. If I was caught with drugs, I would be kicked out. Now, they wouldn't have to say, like, well, you know, we're dissolving the contract. They would say, you dissolved the contract. You violated the terms. You're out. We don't have to uphold our end of the bargain anymore. You violated it. You're done. Biblically, that is actually how marriage seems to be treated, both in the Old and in the New Testament, right? So a lot of people focus on Jesus' words where he says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Yeah, that is the ideal that God set out within Eden. Man should not violate the terms and conditions of the covenant of marriage. It is holy and it is righteous before God's eyes. However, we can violate them. And by doing so, we can innately divorce our spouse. There's also something that God lays out in pretty extraneous detail in the book of Hosea, right? In the book of Hosea, you have God divorcing his people and using Hosea as a picture as to why he's doing it, right? And Hosea is in a relationship. God actually has him marry a prostitute, and his wife cheats on him perpetually Mm. and eventually leaves him in order to be a prostitute, and he allows her to leave. And in that culture, that would be a divorce, right? There is... In our culture, we have this concept of separation and how you could be married but still separate. In the ancient culture, that wasn't the case. If you left, you're done, right? You are divorced. And Hosea reclaims his wife. He goes back and purchases her and remarries her. But that was, again, to show God's faithfulness to Israel and his desire to reconstitute his love for them, which he will do, right? God has not cast them out forever, as Paul says. God will reinstitute a covenant with them. And that is prophesied for us in Zechariah chapter 12. However, the main point that I'm trying to derive from that for your situation is that God did divorce his people. And the reason right. why he divorced them is because they had violated the terms of the covenant. Mm. You're not divorcing your husband. He has divorced you by entering into an extramarital affair. That's one of the main 
promises that we make when we sign the contract of marriage, that I am going to be sexually exclusive with you. That's the whole point of it. Yeah. Uh, if I'm marrying someone and having affairs with other people, then why get married, right? That's like right. one of the most exclusive components within the marital covenant that we all understand when we enter into it. So yeah. he has violated the terms of, of, the, of the covenant. He has divorced you in his actions. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't make a new covenant with him. If he had a decision to leave his mistress and reforge a new covenant with you, you can do that. You can forgive him. It's a difficult thing to do. But right now, your marriage is already dissolved by his actions. It's mm. already over. You are not holding on to an actual covenant anymore. You're holding on to a broken covenant that has been violated and continues to be violated by your husband as he lives with his mistress. So that's an important thing that I want to point out. Now, when it comes to the in-laws, having a healthy relationship with people that support adultery is an impossibility. Mm. So if I'm in a relationship with someone and I'm being abused, because by the way, adultery is a form of abuse, right? It's a violation of the covenant in the most severe way. You know, if I had to choose today, would I rather my wife punch me in the face tonight or cheat on me tonight? Mm. I would way rather her punch me in the face yeah. tonight. That would hurt far less than her going and assuming that she wasn't, you know, the beautiful, delicate woman that I married and assuming she was a <laughs> yeah. hulking beast that could actually do <laughs> How much about her, really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I she is a Norse woman. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> uh, I, I would still much, much rather be physically maimed than yeah. to have her cheat on me like that. That yeah. is an absolutely devastating thing to have happen, to have your vows violated that way. So it is a form of abuse. And anyone who's going to support that kind of abuse, I mean, I, I get if you have to have some sort of a relationship with them for the sake of your kids, but ultimately it should be superficial at best. There's mm -hmm. no way you can have a deep and intimate relationship with someone that is okay with the behavior of someone who is actively abusing you and going against his vows. Right. And this is a failure of parenting. Uh, to say to your child who's doing something evil and wicked to his family for his own selfish desires, and to say, well, I'd rather have a relationship with my son than to call him out on his behavior, that's enabling. That's right. abusive behavior as well, right? If I, as a parent, validate and enable behavior that is destructive, not only to my child, but to everyone my child is afflicting, I am no longer acting in a loving capacity as a parent. I am damaging my child. It says in Proverbs 27 that um, essentially open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. For mm. faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Mm. In other words, what it's saying is if I restrain myself from rebuking negative behavior that I know is damaging to someone, I'm not acting as their friend. I am acting as their enemy. I could tell myself whatever lies I want, but the truth is I am acting as their enemy in that state. Yeah. Uh, it's not loving to do that. So you're dealing with people who are enabling. You're dealing with people who are toxic. It's a, You can have a superficial relationship with them for the sake of your kids, but there's no reason for you to go beyond that. There's no reason right. for you to open yourself up, drop your guard with these people, to try to have an open conversation with them, to try to get to know them better and hang out with them like friends. That's just not even a possibility when you're dealing with individuals like that. And it's scary to do, but you should also call them out for their behavior and their hand in this. They're collaborating with your husband's impropriety. They're collaborating yeah. with his adultery. And it would be okay for you to say, I don't want to have a close relationship with you. And the reason why is because your son is in sin 
and you're refusing to say anything about it, yeah. right? What message does that send to your grandkids? That you're you're okay with adultery? You're okay with someone leaving their wife in favor of a relationship with a mistress, right? So this is, it's a negative example for your children. It's a negative example on all uh, ends. So don't feel as though being gracious and merciful means that you have to endure this type of behavior. And a lot of times it's our timidity that, refrains us from doing what is right Mm. and we try to think that well i'm doing this because i'm loving this person well no you're not you know you're doing it because you're timid you're afraid to assert what's right to say what's correct in this circumstance so be very cautious about that in your own behavior but again seek actual counseling yeah i don't know all the elements of this relationship i'm taking your word for it right i i haven't heard your husband's side but that's my advice just given the the factors you've given me yeah and we're very sorry this is going on as as well. Yeah. Um, a real bullet question, if we're just yeah, in we seconds. Um, question from John: uh, How will the powers that be explain away the disappearance of millions of people during the tribulation or the rapture? I guess he's referring to. Do we know what? I mean, you got to explain. Have an explanation for that. <laughs> no, they don't. If we were ever closer to, or at least more set up for that kind of event in the world government we have, it is our goldfish attention span generation. If I were to ask you to name any list of atrocities that took place in the world that were hot button news two months ago, I guarantee you most of you wouldn't be able to give me a solid answer about any of the details or names involved, even though when they were happening, they were very serious and very relevant. Mm. So when it comes to global phenomena like the rapture of the church, I have absolute confidence in this generation to be as incompetent as the government would want them to be and getting them to move on from it. Mm. Yeah. Well, Peter, thanks so much, Sean. Thank you. We'll be back again tomorrow. Same time, same places, different faces. I I worked it in again. Thank you for being part of the show. Great questions today. God bless you. Have a wonderful rest of the evening. We'll see you tomorrow, we hope. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.